Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray now that as we open up your word together, that it would be your words that are proclaimed and that they would serve the ends for which you have given them, not that we would think that uh, any one of us is great, that we are great, not simply that we would think that the truth is great, though I pray that everything that is said would be true, but I pray that it would show us that Jesus is great, that it would show us that he is our Savior, our King, and that there is no better Savior or King that we could ever know, that those who do not know him would be saved by him, and that we who delight in his salvation would be sanctified by him, would be purified by him, prepared by him for that glorious eternal city where we will dwell with him, worshiping him forever. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please turn to Isaiah 51. Uh, so you remember from last week that Isaiah has been giving something of a pep talk to his hearers. He's been exhorting them Last week, we heard a lot of refrains like, listen up, look at this, direct your attention here. And you'll remember that they needed those exhortations because they were consumed by fear, mostly their fear of men, their fear of their circumstances. We're getting that same tone here. Isaiah is continuing in that vein, but he's broadening his picture and his exhortations are getting stronger. Now he's not just saying, look and listen. He's saying, wake up. Get up, he's shaking them, he's rousing them. You need to hear this. And they're groggy and they're staggering, not just under their fear of men, but now under the whole weight of their suffering, the burdens that they're carrying. And Isaiah needs them to wake up because he's got good news for them. In fact, it's the news that will awaken them. Now, we're still in the context of Isaiah giving prophecies to this nation that will eventually go into exile of Babylon. They're afraid of Babylon. They're afraid of Assyria. And Isaiah is offering hope to those who are afraid of the exile. But you might have noticed over the last few weeks that Isaiah has increasingly been using eternal language. He's been using global language. The picture is getting bigger and bigger. So while he's still giving hope to those people coming back from exile, his main goal is to give them that lasting eternal hope, which is going to come through the unveiling of this good news of God's global eternal salvation. And of course, as Isaiah is unveiling that salvation, he has been unveiling the Messiah through whom that salvation will come about. So let's look at Isaiah 51. We're going to start at verse 17. Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering, there is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it in the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street uh, for them to pass over. This is the word of the Lord. 
So Isaiah's first piece of good news that he wants to wake this people up to hear is that God has removed his wrath from them. God has removed his wrath from his people. Isaiah says they are suffering many things. He talks about devastation and destruction, famine and sword. They're being plagued by natural evils. They're being plagued by attacks from their enemies. This suffering Isaiah encapsulates in the picture of the cup of wrath. Their suffering feels like it's being poured out onto them or even poured into them. It's not something that they can run from. It fills up who they are. And like a strong drink that you've been filled up with, it leaves them staggering. It affects their mind. It affects their body. They're totally broken. It's compared with drunkenness. But this image of the cup of wrath also is meant to stress God's sovereignty over that suffering. It's his cup. It's in his hand, even as they drink it. It was his promised response for their transgressions against his covenant. And he controls who receives it. But he also controls how much they receive. And this picture of the cup is also meant to show that God has determined a set amount of suffering and he determines when it is done. They have drunk the cup, Isaiah says, to the dregs. It's empty now. God has determined that this is enough suffering, the appointed amount for his people. And now he's going to take that cup from them. Isaiah also says it will be handed to their tormentors. God used those tormentors as instruments. We see that all throughout Isaiah, of course. But they're getting proud, and they're starting to feel like they have deserved this place of supremacy even over God's people. They bow them to the ground. They force them to do their will. And God makes it clear that in time, he will no longer pour his wrath on his people. He will turn to become their advocate. He will advocate for them in the face of their enemies and their enemies will receive that cup of wrath. While these promises do provide hope to a people suffering from fear of Assyria and Babylon, Isaiah is clearly looking to something greater because he's addressing these promises to people who have problems that exile and return from exile cannot solve. Judah is staggering, she's suffering, she's bewildered, but that, of course, is bound up in her own sin, in her own folly. She herself has failed to produce any worthy sons. There is none to guide her among all she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she's brought up. God is promising a relief, lasting relief, to a people with no future prospects. Nobody that they can put forward to say, this guy is going to help us uphold the covenant. This guy is going to be righteous enough for us to walk according to God's law. History shows us that after the exile, God's people continued in much of their folly and they continued in much of their suffering. So how can God remove his wrath? How can he grant lasting relief to a people who produce no worthy sons, people who continue in foolishness? This is a setup for that glorious news that will be Isaiah's focus in the following passage, which we will look at next week. When that coming servant of the Lord, we've heard of him already, right? The one who can be the new Israel, the one who can stand in Israel's place, will, spoiler, even stand in their place in receiving the cup of wrath. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has been the offering for our guilt. That's as much as I'll read although you can look at it at home if you want to. When Jesus is preparing for that moment in Gethsemane, 
that moment when he will bear the wrath of all of God's people. He prays, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again, he prays, my father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. Here we see again Isaiah's cup of wrath, which all of God's enemies will have poured out from them forever, poured out on them, is taken from God's people, not because they are better than God's enemies, not because they have produced a righteous generation that deserves relief from the cup of wrath, but it is because the cup of our wrath is placed into the hands of Jesus. And Jesus knew that cup was terrible. But he chose to take it because that was God's good plan to glorify Jesus and save his people. Friends, our sin is no less punished than the sin of those who suffer an eternity in hell. Jesus drank that cup dry on our behalf. And if Jesus took it, then it is absolutely impossible for us to pay for that sin. God is too good a judge. God is too gracious a father. The cup is empty. There is no more to pour out. And so God says, you are justified. There is no wrath for you. This is why there can be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This assurance that the cup is totally drank, that the price is paid, that is the reason that God can say, All of the accounts for my people have been met. All of the curse has been taken. There is nothing left to give. And Jesus can gloriously rise from the dead. A seal of that promise to us that just as surely Jesus is alive, our punishment will not be paid by us. Death and wrath, we will surely dwell in eternal life with him, totally free from the wrath of God. So that is Isaiah's first piece of good news. Wrath has been removed from God's people. Let's continue in Isaiah 52, 1 to 12. Isaiah 52, verses 1 to 12. Awake, awake, put on strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing. You shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually at all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the 
God of Israel will be your rear guard. This is the word of the Lord. So God tells his people again, wake up, wake up, shake the dust off of yourselves, sit up. Deliverance from wrath is not the end of your good news. Our second point is this, God redeems Zion to belong to him. God never delivers people from wrath and enslavement to simply belong to themselves. To free us from wrath to belong to ourselves would be to force us right back into slavery. Be to take you out of Egypt simply to listen to your own cries. Can I go back to Egypt now? True freedom from wrath, sin, folly, despair is only to belong to God. And that is the promise that God makes through Isaiah here that his people will not just be freed from their enemies, but they will surely belong to him. God says you were sold for nothing and you should be redeemed without money. Egypt, Assyria, and, and Babylon, these nations that had oppressed God's people had no real claim on them. It's not like God paid them to become enslavers. God wouldn't need to buy back his people. They didn't pay God anything to become the oppressors of Israel. These people were always gods. He does not have to put together a capital campaign to buy them back. He sovereignly handed them over, but he can sovereignly bring them back to himself. But this phrase also speaks to the real cost of our deliverance. God owed no debt to Babylon or Assyria to reclaim his people. We are the ones who owe the debt the debt of righteousness that we have already failed to pay. God created us in his image to glorify him, to display his glory. And we chose to serve only ourselves. We very quickly failed to do that which God had designed us for, and very quickly we owed to God a debt. And we continue to grow that debt as we live for our own glory trying to be our own masters, trying to live the way that we think is best to say what is right on our own terms. That has only led us into the hands of enslavers. Our own sin, the devil, death, those are enemies that we are subject to. And no matter how hard we try to continue to assert our own glory, we only entrench ourselves deeper and deeper into their grip. But their hold on us is because of our own sin our own failure towards God. So there is nothing that we can achieve. There's no amount of gold or silver. There is no list of accomplishments that can satisfy that debt. There is nothing left for us but to pay with punishment for our transgression against God. But even as God is the one to whom this debt is owed, God himself is willing to pay the cost. Peter quotes our passage from Isaiah this morning, to tell us the cost that God has paid to redeem all of his people through history. First Peter 1, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus' own blood spilled on our behalf was the price of God's turning his wrath away to become the comforter of his people. That was the cost of God saying to this unworthy enslaved people in Isaiah, therefore my people shall know my name. In that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. 
Isaiah understands that this news is the best news. Not just that wrath has been removed, that that God's people can be brought near to him. Isaiah knows there is no better news that a person could ever hear. And he wants to help us understand. I don't think you understand how good this news is. I think you are missing it. And he paints this picture for them of a runner coming into a city after a battle. In this age of quick information, it's hard to think of the emotions that you would feel watching a runner come back from the battlefield towards the city. The men in the watchtower are looking on and they're wondering what kind of news this runner brings because they know that whatever is in that person's mouth has the power to send the entire city, the entire kingdom, either into celebration or into mourning. Is he going to say that the battle is lost? That our people are enslaved? That there's no more hope for us? There is no worse sight in the world than a runner bringing news like that. But conversely, Isaiah says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah is showing us how good the good news is. God has conquered every enemy. Even sin and death have been laid low. He has paid every price. He brings total peace. He brings salvation. He brings rest to Zion, his people. And no sooner do the watchmen receive this good news from the runner than they look back at the hills and there comes the victorious king with his victory train behind him and all of Zion erupts in celebration. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Zion will belong to him. So break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now Isaiah says, all nations, the ends of the earth will witness this salvation. Again, we see that he's looking beyond local victories over Babylon and Assyria. Luke references this passage in the announcement of the coming of John the Baptist, who himself had the job of pointing to the coming of Jesus. So in many ways, we see John playing this role, right? He's the runner coming into the city, preceding the coming salvation, bringing the good news that it's here, it's about to arrive. There is one who comes after me. Isaiah is looking forward to nothing less than the coming good news of Jesus, of all that he has accomplished, his victory, the eternal deliverance and peace that will come through his death and resurrection. And then even today, All the ends of the earth, all the nations are starting to witness this salvation, just as it will one day visibly manifest over all the world when Jesus comes into his own. But for now, Paul told us in Romans, as Brother George read for us, that we ourselves who have experienced this salvation, we now become the runners. We now go out proclaiming this best of news How then will they call on him, Paul says, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
We are the proclaimers of Zion's salvation and comfort. We are the body that commissions and establishes and raises up preachers and says, go, say, go out and tell them. And then all of us walk out into the world together and we have this good news. We are fulfilling what Isaiah promised. You can see it accomplished as Jesus' salvation goes out into the world. Even in Isaiah's day, you can see in this passage, when Jesus had not yet come, when Jesus had not yet accomplished all the things that Isaiah was looking forward to, Isaiah was still showing us in this passage that the goodness of the good news is bound up in this being a victory that is accomplished entirely by God. You're waiting in the city to know what God will do, and God comes from his victory and says, yes, I have done all of this for you. This is for us, but not by us. Paul drives that point home when he quotes Isaiah in Romans 10. We announce this salvation. We trust in it, but we don't need to accomplish it. That's why Paul closes that passage in Romans 10 saying, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's by faith. We could not remove the wrath on our own. We are the ones who owe the debt. We could not pay the price of our redemption. We could never deliver ourselves from sin and death. This good news is good, because it says that God has accomplished everything for us in Christ. Isaiah commands us in this passage, but not to accomplish anything. His commands are to take hold of what God has promised. Wake up and see the salvation of our God. Take off your bonds because God has already broken them. Rejoice in God's victory because the battle is already won. That is what he calls God's people to do. Friends, when you feel anxious or sheepish about sharing the gospel, remember that you are a runner bringing the greatest news of the greatest victory. We don't come with a cost people need to pay. We don't come with a standard that they need to meet. We don't come with steps to follow to achieve tranquility or peace or stability. We don't come with a routine of stretches and exercises. We have news that the battle is won. Jesus has done it all. Just trust in him. Just put your faith in him. And yes, some people will hate it. They will hear your coming feet as bad news because they love the things that God says he came to redeem us from. They hate to think that those passions and pleasures that they live for deserve wrath from a holy God. You might feel this as you hear me talking about this right now. God's victory would sound like your defeat. But still, God's got good news. God offers his salvation to his enemies. You can, right now, at any point, defect from the armies of Satan and sin. You might feel like those things that God calls wicked are so much a part of you that you would lose yourself if you surrendered them. Deep down, you might assume you never could surrender them. But that is the amazing extent of the freedom from enslavement that God is promising. Full deliverance from wrath and full deliverance from sin. You can repent of them Swear allegiance to the victorious king by believing in him, and that is it. You belong to him forever. His victory is yours forever. 
Friends, as we go out into this world, never let any opposition make you doubt that you have the best news. Eternal victory and peace and comfort for the whole earth. Good news of great joy for all people. It is wonderful that this victory is already accomplished for us. It makes no demands on us. But that does not mean it leaves us where we are. This victory is so complete that it doesn't just free us from sin, it purifies us from sin. This is the third piece of good news that we see from Isaiah today. God purifies Zion to be his holy people. Isaiah invites his hearers, come and live in that victory that God has given us. Just as he tells them to take off their bonds, he tells them, rise up, leave their life of slavery behind, live now like a victorious citizen of Zion. Awake, awake, put on strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and unclean. Or verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Isaiah hasn't switched his tune, where he's suddenly making all these requirements of us to secure a victory for ourselves to belong to God. He's still telling us this is what it means to simply trust in the victory that God has accomplished for you. We can put on strength, not because we're strong, but because the Lord has bared his mighty arm of salvation for us. He has laid out Beautiful garments for Zion to wear. They are freely given. They are waiting there for you. Just put them on. This image of new garments is often used in scripture to talk about holiness, just as we see here. It's a matter of casting away old, filthy garments stained by sin and putting on clean, new garments that God has prepared. Exchanging an old life of sin for a new life of holiness. Just like Isaiah has assured his people that they are justified by God, here he is promising that they are totally born again, made new, regenerated by him. He also tells them that they can now bear the vessels of the Lord, and this is a reference to the priesthood. God is assuring his people that he is making them into those people that he has always promised they would be, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Where did God get those beautiful garments that he laid out for them? All they had were filthy rags. Where did he find them? He had Jesus prepare those garments for us. Paul tells us Jesus became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our filthy rags and he wore them on the cross. Bearing the weight of our sin And with his perfect life, he prepared the robes of righteousness that he then gives to us. Put those on. Be in me. These are yours now. Based upon this victory that God has worked, Isaiah exhorts his hearers, depart from your enslavement. Live as free citizens of Zion. Even this departing from sin, it's not something you need to achieve. Isaiah says, you shall not go out in haste. You shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Our, our escape from slavery is not some sort of elaborate plan by which we need to free ourselves. It's not even the hasty departure from Egypt, where they were running to make sure that they could get out of Egypt before Pharaoh changed his mind. God has crushed his enemies. 
They are laid low. They are defeated. You can waltz out of slavery to sin. You can throw a parade. You can go slowly because God has accomplished the victory and he is with you. Like the Exodus, he is before you and behind you. By the Holy Spirit, he is in you. God is with you, leading you out of slavery to sin. Walk in that victory. Rest in, enjoy what God has accomplished by departing from slavery. Now, this isn't a call from, to laziness. You can't just continue in sin and blame it on God. Well, I was supposed to slowly waltz out of victory, and it's not happening, so it must be God's fault. There is a sternness to Isaiah's command. Don't delay. Get up. Depart from sin. Isaiah is saying not to put on strength in the battle of sin, to not depart from enslavement. To not do those things would be to ignore what God has done. It would be to ignore God's victory and say it hasn't been accomplished at all. Paul says, we can now strive. How? with the energy that God works in us. We can work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God has worked in us. Even with all that God has accomplished for us, we still feel in the moment like this call to holiness is a struggle, is a battle. Because we do still have enemies. God has not yet fully seen them crushed. The world, the flesh, the devil. And even as their end is certainly sure, it is secured by Jesus, they even now war against the church. They lie to us and they tell us that this good news which Isaiah has proclaimed is really not all that good. Either that God's accomplishment isn't as amazing as it seemed, or it is a great accomplishment and it's not yours. The devil will say to you, the fact that you are still suffering, that shows that you're under God's wrath. Jesus hasn't taken it from you. There must be more for you to do. God can't love you that much if you're suffering this much. To which you will say to him, no, I am being disciplined as God's child. I am being prepared and made holy for the glory that is to come. I am not bearing God's wrath because God's wrath was already totally borne by Jesus. God is not my enemy. He is my father. And I am sharing in the sufferings of Christ even as I am preparing to enter into the glory that Jesus will receive from his Father. Rest in Jesus. Then the devil will say, you can't feel that secure in God's hands, can you? Don't expect him to put up with you forever. There's gonna be another sin, another sin after that, or there's gonna be stagnancy in the fight for holiness. And he's eventually gonna get sick of you. To which you will say, God does not accept me into his kingdom because I am good. God does not accept me because I have done enough good actions or even that I'm just good enough. He never loves us or welcomes us on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what Jesus has done, and it is done. Jesus has done it all and my trust is in him and nothing can separate me from the love of God. And then the devil will say, but look how much you sin. You aren't holy. You can never be holy. Either God's plan for you has failed or his plan isn't for you. There is no way that you will be welcome in God's kingdom. You think that you are a citizen of Zion, 
along with Abraham and David and Moses? You think that you're getting what they're getting? They'd cringe to have you nearby. Unclean. Or he'll say, clearly God's promises are too small to answer your sin. God's promises to make you holy clearly aren't enough to break that need for pornography you have, that lustful desire that you cast upon everyone. God's promises can't remove that bitterness you feel, that division that you cause in your family, that rude way that you treat your family and friends, your spouse, even your children when they double-cross you. God can't deal with that. God doesn't have enough joy to free you from your constant anxiety or your covetous desire to have all the goods that your non-believing neighbors have around you. The devil is telling many of those lies. The devil was telling them since the beginning of God's people. The devil was telling them to the Corinthian church. The Corinthians, they loved the good news, but they weren't confident that that good news was good enough. They were glad to hear that they could be justified, that God's wrath was paid for. They wanted to belong to God, but they weren't so confident that all of God's promises were for them. They weren't circumcised, were they? They certainly didn't feel clean. And Isaiah did say that in Jerusalem, when it was established forever, the uncircumcised and the unclean wouldn't even be allowed to enter. Did this mean that according to Isaiah, these non-Jewish, historically wicked Corinthians would not ever be allowed to even get into Zion? This insecurity about whether they were really citizens of Zion, this insecurity that says God's promises really aren't for you, push them back. Well, if I'm not a citizen of that kingdom, I'm going to start identifying more with the person I clearly am, a citizen of the kingdom of this world, the one that they claimed Jesus had saved them from. They weren't a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. They were Corinthians. It's time they start acting like Corinthians, just like their Corinthian neighbors. So they were drawn back into the same sins, the same lifestyle that they knew before for they knew God. And that is the same power that the devil's lies have with us. If I'm not a citizen of God's kingdom, then I must be a citizen of the world. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So Paul quotes Isaiah to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6.14. Isaiah, Paul quotes Isaiah. Do not be equally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, Go out from their midst and be separated from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We have those promises. They are yours, just as they belong to Isaiah's first hearers, they are yours. Not only are the Corinthians welcome in Zion, they are the temple in the middle of her. They are not guests. They are pillars in her heart, as near to God as one could be. 
To be clean in God's eyes is not something you inherently have that you lose when you sin too much. It's not like a purity ring where you have to take it off because you did too many impure things. That's garbage. That's not God's view of purity. None of us is pure. It's worse than that. You can't ever put the ring on. (laughs) None of us is naturally pure, but all of us have been entirely, completely, perfectly, irremovably cleansed and purified and made new by Christ. Likewise, circumcision, just as the prophets always said, was never ultimately about keeping a law so that you could show that you were somebody who's done the right thing to get into God's kingdom. Circumcision was always ultimately a matter of the heart. Physical circumcision, just like baptism now, is a declaration of faith. It declares what is in your hearts. So we show by our faith and love that we are, as Paul says, the circumcision. We are those who trust in Christ. The Corinthians and you and I are citizens of Zion in the same way that God has always qualified citizens of Zion, unworthy sinners who through a good Messiah rest in the victory that God has totally accomplished for them. Nothing that they have done, nothing that they are, all Christ. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robes. He declares who wears them. He took our wrath so that we could be justified. He paid the price that we could belong to God. He won our citizenship in Zion. Through Christ, the gates are flung open. Saying of Jesus, that is my savior. That is my wrath taken. That is my righteousness given. That is my justification. That is my holiness. That is my hope. That is your Ticket into the heart of Zion. That is your citizenship. Trust in Christ. God's people have always needed to be reminded of that. They have always doubted that. They have always needed these assurances. Why is Isaiah giving them in the first place? They need this hope in the midst of their suffering and their fear and their doubt. They need to know, don't fret, you are welcome in Zion. Do you trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Is that your hope, that he died in your place on the cross, that he bore the wrath that you deserved, and that he has given you his perfect record, his righteous robes, that you would be in him justified, sanctified, eternally glorified? Have you given up trusting in yourself? Have you given up your allegiance to that wicked, vile sin that this world loves that has enslaved you? Have you said, his death and resurrection are for me? I will not stand before God and tell him what I have done. I will simply tell him, look at what Jesus has done for me. Then your bonds are broken. Take them off. Your clean garments are laid out. Put them on. Your slavery is ended and you belong to God. Get up and walk out of the world and its sin and live in righteousness. Enjoy being a citizen of Zion. Enjoy that the Lord walks before you and behind you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And don't let that world around you, don't let the devil or your own flesh make you believe for a moment that there is anything more to accomplish. That there is anything you failed to do 
that God's victories are somehow diminished when it comes to you, that holiness is beyond your reach. It's all yours in Christ. Take hold of it. Come out from sin and slavery. You're acting like a slave while your shackles are broken. You are living in a prison without bars or guards. Just get up and put on your new clean clothes and walk out of there. Be a citizen of Zion today. You are not a slave to this world. You are a runner into it, bearing good news. Telling people that they can come out from it and your own changed life, how you yourself have come out from it, is evidence of the power of that victory. All the while, we wait for the day when the battle with sin and suffering and pain that we experience as exiles in this world will finally be over. When the full restoration of Zion in the new heavens and the new earth is finally fully brought about. When her uncleanness will be gone. When sin will be banished forever. No more wickedness. No more sin. No more uncleanness. But you will be there. John tells us of this day, again referencing this passage in Isaiah in Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb, Jesus. And it's, by its light, the nations will walk. Oh, the nations are walking around Zion, and the kings of the earth will bring all their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut. You will never be told that you do not belong there. Never be shut by day, and there'll be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those and all of those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life? If through Jesus you know this, your wrath is taken, you belong to God, this is your city. This is your destiny. This is your citizenship. Don't walk away from it. Don't strive to earn it. Don't doubt whether it's been paid for. It's yours. Live in it and rejoice in it. We are going to do that this morning as we take Lord's Supper together. This is one of the ways that we remember the victory that God has accomplished. God gave this supper to the church and said, it belongs to you to take together so that you would know that your hope is in me, so that you can remember and remind each other. When we take the bread and we take the cup, we say Jesus' body was broken, his blood was spilled. Total victory was accomplished, and it was accomplished for us. And now we can be confident in it, and we can live as victorious citizens of Zion, even as we wait for the final consummation of that victory, when Zion visibly appears for all the world. It is for that reason that we ask that because the Lord has given this to this church, that it belong only to those who are saved, who are baptized, who are declared to be members of God's church, who are members of any church that proclaims the gospel. If you have trusted in Christ, then we ask that if you have not yet declared this in membership as a part of a church family, do not take it as this is a gift by which the family can hold each other to this sweet assurance. When you do, then you can come to the table with us and delight in this good gift that God has given to his church. But if you are a part of a church family that proclaims the gospel, 
you've declared your faith and trust in him, then let us as citizens of Zion partake together in this feast as we look forward to the marriage supper of the lambs. Lamb, I'd like to call the elders forward.